0: What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW one-weight champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the two-man power trip of wrestling. You'll get all the load down. Ha, 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 ha.
1: Well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's, uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go or what? Oh, okay.
0: This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling.
2: Hey, man, what's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's
1: my homie! Homicide with a big homie club! Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me.
2: Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling brought to you today and powered by our friends over at Meowbox. Meowbox is the monthly cat subscription box service that's full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And as always, please stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for the listeners of the Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling, courtesy of our feline friends over at Meowbox and Meowbox.com. A great relationship growing ever so mightily with every show that passes, and we love Meowbox, and please stay tuned a little bit later on for that special code, courtesy of the crew over there at Meowbox. But with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz. And John. today on the show, it's one of those guests that you kind of pinch yourself and ask, did I really just read that as I downloaded the Two Man Power Trip? And that is correct, you did. And the name on the marquee is Jerry McDivitt, the lead attorney for World Wrestling Entertainment and also a member of the K&L Gates law firm out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A man who might be very familiar to wrestling fans, but I know some of you might have downloaded it and not really known who Jerry McDivitt is. But to those of you who do know, you know that this is not necessarily an interview that you're going to scroll by on any other show. This is an interview that I got to say my tag team partner put together in quite a nice little fashion. And I got to say the topics that we covered were pretty uh, pretty surprising, uh, more than what I thought we were going to discuss And in almost a 70-minute interview with Mr. McDivitt, we cover so many different things that WWE has been through over the last 30 years. We talk about the relationship that Mr. McDivitt has with Mr. Vince McMahon. We talk about the McMahon family. We talk about ups. We talk about downs. But most importantly, we get the story that we've never heard before, and that's the story of Jerry McDivitt and how he became the lead attorney for the WWE. And, John, I know it's kind of, you know, it's kind of funny to say it again. It was uh, one of those where I'm going to pinch myself and kind of say, did I just read that name? And, yes, you did. And, John, I'd love to hear how this all came about, how did Jerry McDivitt end up on the two-man power trip of wrestling and kind of go over some of the topics that we did cover in this amazing near-70-minute interview.
0: Yes, Chad, quite a monumental episode we have here today, the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is one of the biggies. I mean, we've had some big guests on before, but this is one of our biggest without a shadow of a doubt. He is the lead attorney for the WWE. He's obviously a partner with k Gates a Law Firm out of Pittsburgh, PA. He is Mr. Jerry McDivitt, and it was quite an honor to get him on the show. And he is a highly ranking official within WWE, obviously. He's considered to be Vince McMahon's right-hand man and obviously he's been Vince's secret weapon for many many years as the WWE has gone through many a lawsuit and Mr. McDivitt has hardly lost any cases so obviously he's been a key and vital member of the WWE family and as we learned since 1987 he's been a very key and a very vital role in WWE and of course to Vince McMahon and his family as well. Now the relationship how how this kind of came to fruition and and how this all came about is we're always talking to the wrestlers about their side of it obviously we had a couple guys on we uh, brought up the topic of the network royalties and you know different things sometimes concussions come up and various different topics come up on our show and we cover all bases here you know gotta keep the credibility going gotta touch on every single topic you can't leave anything out so it's always good to hear the other side of the spectrum because you know we've talked to a lot of the wrestlers And we've even talked to some other lawyers, not from the WB side of things. So, I mean, it's always good to get the WB perspective as well. And obviously, Jerry McDivitt would fit that bill perfectly. And originally, when I spoke to him the first time, it was just for a quote about the network royalty thing. And we kind of get into it, and we talked a few times after that, and uh, we decided to do an interview about it. I mean, we talked about a uh, myriad of topics, and it was just great to be able to get him
2: on and him to shed light on all these different lawsuits. Absolutely, And the fact of the matter is that when we talk about some of these integral moments in WWE history from the legal perspective, including the steroid trials of the early 1990s uh, to discuss Hulk Hogan's testimony in helping exonerate Vince McMahon of the charges and him even going into details about, you know, what was brought forward towards the WWE and actually even referencing Dr. Zaharian, which is another thing I just never would have thought when we discussed We discussed doing this interview that we would have been talking about, and it was very, very um, surreal almost to say that we had these things being discussed on our airwaves from the WWE perspective. But, John, I think overall it's the honesty, uh, it's the candid nature of his topics, and actually getting to know what Vince McMahon is like from the inside looking out rather than the outside looking in. And of course, Jerry McDivitt would be one of the best people to go to outside of the McMahon family for that kind of perspective. But it's also cool to get that take on what he thinks of the McMahons going forward and talking about Shane and Stephanie and where he's seen them from when they were kids to growing up to what they are now in the business world and also the world of WWE. But let's stay with Vince McMahon. Let's talk about the candid nature of Mr. McDivitt's comments and telling us what it was like Meeting Vince McMahon, what it was like getting to know Vince McMahon, and of course what Vince McMahon is like today, and when honesty is the best policy, I got to tell you something. Jerry McDivitt gave us everything we could have expected, and even more.
0: Yeah, you know what the the thing here, Chad, that, that really I liked about the interview, and really stuck out to me was he was very candid on every topic i mean he didn't do any quote unquote lawyer speak it was just shooting from the hip and giving a good straight answers. so we really appreciate that on our show because we don't like to kind of skirt around the issue we like to hit the issues here dead on and obviously we've done that many many times in our show through many of the episodes but jerry especially was very very candid about the McMahons and one person obviously who's possibly the most fascinating person in the history of the wrestling business would be Vincent Kennedy McMahon the leader of the WB obviously right now we're looking at a fifth generation with Shane McMahon's kids and and Stephanie's kids of the WB but I mean we're talking all the way back to Vince's grandfather Vince's father and then of course talking about Vince himself and who else to get inside the mind of Vince or to get some good close personal stories about Vince McMahon the leader of the WWE then uh, mr. Jerry McDivitt who's been Vince's right-hand man like we said so I mean we got some great Vince's story it's some like kind of I guess you would say behind the scenes Vince stories I mean we got a great story I'll just call it the janitor story about Vince which really shows his uh, compassionate side I guess you can say or, or the other side of Vince that we don't see and then we do get into a great topic of the the intimidating side of Vince, the uh, you know the side that people are scared of and they don't really want to mess with. So we talk about that side. We also talk about a great story, obviously how Jerry got into his relationship with Vince McMahon, and that is through Jim Nighthard and the whole flight incident. So we get into that story in great detail. But it was great to hear from Jerry. And his story with Jim Neidhart, how Neidhart was intimidated at Vince. He was scared of Vince. He didn't want to lose his spot on WrestleMania 3. So, just great stories from Mr. Jerry McDivitt about Vince. And we love getting that side, you know, the behind the scenes side of things from Vince. Because, you know, a lot of the stuff you hear public out in the open, but we wanted to get more in depth and get. True blue inside stories on Vince. So there was a couple great ones on there. It's just unbelievable that your stuff you're gonna hear about Vince. You've never heard anywhere else but here, so that's great. Definitely see another side of Vince and his fascinating life and his fascinating story and obviously the huge mecca that is the WWE. We also go into detail on the steroid trial, the possibility of Vince serving jail time, how likely that was. That's a great story. We also get into the network royalties lawsuit. I kinda take the other side of the spectrum and kinda see where they're coming from and then we get Jerry's perspective on it. We also talk a little bit about Rene Dupree, a you know big time guest on our show, but we wanted to hear what happened on his side and how that whole lawsuit fell through. We also talk a little bit about the WCW ECW aspect of the network and the royalties issue and of course we talk about the concussions lawsuit uh, the many concussion lawsuits that are going on whether it be uh, from Nelson Frazier or you know from the Lagrasso Singleton or from Billy Jack Haynes we go into each one in depth so that is great stuff there And obviously we talk a little NFL and the difference between the NFL concussion lawsuits and the WB lawsuits. So this is one of our most in-depth episodes. This is one of a great one. And just sit back and relax because you are really going to enjoy
2: our conversation with WB lead attorney, Mr. Jerry McDavid. If you've been with us since the beginning, you know that this is an episode that is definitely going to shed some light on some of the topics discussed On the airwaves, you know that we've been on the ground floor with the network royalties argument and we've been brought to light by many different uh, sources and sites and bringing us up and kind of accusing us of maybe stirring the pod and things of that nature, but you know what? At the end of the day, we're in it for everybody. We're in it for the wrestlers to have their voice. We're in it to give the WWE their take. We're in it for everyone to get what they want. And of course, we want you to listen to the two-man power trip of wrestling. And please, make your voices heard and let us know what you think of the interview with Jerry McDivitt, what you think of what we've done thus far. And please, if you can, share it with a friend. Tell somebody about it. The old, you tell two friends and they tell two friends and yada 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 but we really appreciate you downloading this episode and there is so much more to come in the world of the two-man power trip and every day it seems like there's something new that's popping up behind the scenes and the ride is uncontrollably crazy but it's getting better all the time and we appreciate anybody listening to this right now as we speak i know john you feel the same way But with that being said, we want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Meowbox, and when you throw the code POWERTRIP10 into the checkout box on meowbox.com, you're going to get 10% off your first monthly box subscription just simply by using that promo code POWERTRIP10. And Meowbox, they've been with us for a very long time. We love them dearly. And they want you to take advantage of the Power Trip 10 promo code and hook yourself up with some lovely a cat subscription box services. And with that being said, John, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. Tell them a little bit about the two-man power trip themselves, but most importantly, tell them about Meowbox and Meowbox.com. Yes,
0: Meowbox is back. Not only is your Meow Box personalized by hand with your cat's name written on the inside of the box, all of the edible items are made in Canada or the USA so you know where all your ingredients are coming from. Also, they have a program, it's a giving program, it's called One Box Can. With every Meow Box purchase, they donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf. Also, and most importantly to me, for picky cats like mine, my cat is Lucy, who has a very special diet. We offer to receive Meow Boxes with absolutely no edible items. They actually replace food and treats with more toys and more surprises. So that's MeowBox.com. Please enter promo code POWERTRIP10 and receive 10% off your first subscription. Again, it's MeowBox.com. Enter the promo code POWERTRIP10. And now, for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Rasslin and at Two Man Power Trip. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. We are releasing the latest and greatest clips. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on there, please check out the feed for prior great episodes with the late American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Jesse the Body Ventura, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the phenomenal AJ Styles, the Demon, Glenn Kane Jacobs, The Lunatic Fringe, Dean Ambrose, Stan the Laird Hanson, and many, many more. Also, please check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com, that is tmptofwrestling.com. You can now check us out on Google Play, as well as Player FM and the I-95 Sports Network. For any bookings, please hit up our email, bookings at tmptofwrestling.com, that is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com for any of your booking needs also check out our store on prowrestlingtees.com it is new and it is awesome so please check it out as prowrestlingtees.com also while you're there check out the kevin thorne page as well as the mr wonderful paul orner page and the coming soon the buff bagwell page so please check that out on prowrestlingtees.com we are the two-man power trip of wrestling, and we are creating a platform so you can learn about all the aspects of the business—not only for the fran- for the fans, but for wrestlers alike. We have a wide variety of, inter- of interviews to choose from. We have Hall of Famers, legends, icons, current stars, actors, comedians, race car drivers, even wrestlers, of course, from the WWE, New Japan Pro Wrestling, TNA, ROH, WCW, ECW, the Indies, Smoky Mountain, and so much more. We aren't your conventional podcast. We are not going to do what the others are doing. We like to stay true, we like to stay original, and we like to be different. And now, without any further ado, he is Vince McMahon's secret weapon, he is his right hand man, he is the lead attorney for the World Wrestling Entertainment, he is Mr. Jerry McDivitt. Please enjoy.
4: Gary McDivitt, a member of the K&L Gates Law Firm out of Pittsburgh, but also a WWE attorney, and he's joining us on the line tonight, and we sincerely appreciate his time.
1: How are you doing, John and Chad? Look forward to talking to you. Doing very good. Same
4: here, Mr. Same here, Mr. McDivitt. No, we're absolutely uh, honored to have you on, and uh, it's kind of funny, like I said, it's a name that uh, wrestling fans are definitely familiar with, but maybe not knowing your full backstory and I think the most proper place to start is, uh, when you began practicing law, did you ever see yourself getting involved in the crazy world of professional wrestling?
1: Uh, no, uh, my law firm at the time, uh, was what would be regarded as sort of a white shoe law firm, which, uh, tended to do, uh, fortune 500 corporate work, uh, and, uh, I, I, I think representing WWE would have been the furthest thing from my mind when I started there.
4: Yes, and uh, it's an absolutely, <laughs> it's quite the world to be in. Uh, WWE is obviously uh, considered to be the, the mecca of professional wrestling, and there's been so much history with it. But with your history involved with practicing law, and uh, what was it that made you want to get into uh, becoming a lawyer?
1: Um. Well, when I I got out of college, I uh, had majored in biology and chemistry. And when I went to college, I wanted to be a doctor, uh, at least until I had to go in labs and do dissections, which I didn't really like doing all that much. So when I uh, came out of college in my senior year, I had been working 40 hours a week because I didn't have any money, and I was driving a beer truck and sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life uh, and started thinking about law school. Uh, when I got into a dispute with my landlord over uh, my security deposit, she wouldn't give me back my $250, which at the time was a lot of money to me. And um, so I went to the law library and sort of figured out a way that, uh, that if she didn't give me back the, the money, I could get double that amount, which I did. And I thought, well, it's, that's was it's kind of fun, um, but I still didn't have – uh, any money. So I decided I would go into the Marines for a couple of years to get the GI bill. And when I was in the service for a couple of years, I had a lot of experience with the uniform code of military justice. And I also got a chance to see some of my Marines, uh, I was a Marine Lieutenant, uh, being mistreated, I thought by the civilian justice system. Uh, and, uh, in particular, I had one experience with one of my favorite sergeants who, uh, I got married to some older woman who wanted the PX privileges and was pushing them for money and he made a mistake and went out and stole an air conditioner one night from somebody's house, took it to the pawn shop, got caught and charged with felony larceny, couldn't afford an attorney, and asked me uh, if I could help him. And I told him, I'm not a lawyer, but let me see what I can do. So I went over to the law library and and, uh, started looking at law books and found out that felony larceny in North Carolina, which where I was stationed, was something like if you steal something over $500. And so I talked to him, and I said, do you have any idea what, what the value of that was? And he said, no. And I said, well, do you know the name of the guy you stole it from? And he said, yeah. I said, give me his name. So he did, and I called the man. I introduced myself and said I was Lieutenant McDivitt, and I was Sergeant Wicks troop commander, and he wanted to make restitution. Could he tell me how much he paid for the... Air conditioner, and he told me something like three hundred dollars, which I immediately recognized then Sergeant Wicks was charged with something he didn't do. He, he committed misdemeanor larceny, but not felony larceny. There's a big difference between the two one you go to jail for when you pay a fine. So I was a little bit naive at the time. I thought uh, the prosecutor would want to know this, so I got the receipt, went down to the courthouse uh, with Sergeant Wicks and asked to see the prosecutor out in the hallway. And I said, uh, introduced myself and said, look, you have this man charged with felony larceny. That's $500. Here's, here's the receipt for the air conditioner. It was only 300 bucks." And I actually thought at the time he would be happy and would you know, say, oh, gee, I'm really, really glad you found this out. But he, he looked at me with his jaundiced look and he said, uh, Lieutenant, are you practicing law without a license? Which frankly pissed me off. Uh, and I said, well, I didn't think I was, but frankly, if I have to go get a lawyer, I'll take money out of my own pocket if I have to, but you're not going to railroad this guy for something he didn't do. So it's your choice what you want to do. And that was kind of my first experience with uh, the legal system in that way. I guess it's always carried with me that people can be treated enormously unfairly by the legal system if they don't have uh, adequate counsel. And so that stayed with me when I was in the service, and then when I got out of the service, I just decided I, I wanted to go to law school, and that's what I did.
4: How was your day-to-day experiences serving in the Marine Corps, uh, especially, you know, I'm sure uh, at the time, you know, you weren't um, really uh, knowing what was going to be ahead of you, but preparing yourself for what your post-Marine Corps life would be. How did that day-to-day uh, service really treat you um, and prepare you for what you'd be doing later in life?
1: Well, I, it's funny because up until that time, Chad, I think, you know, when you go to college, you're basically dealing with people who are pretty honest people and tell you the truth and whatnot. And uh, at that time in the Marines, uh, when I went in, it was like 73 to 76. Um, back in those days, uh, when, when kids would get in trouble, the judges would often tell them they had their choice between going to jail and going to the Marine Corps. And so I had something like 80 troops Uh, Under my command, I was a communications electronics officer, and I think something like 60 of them didn't even have a high school degree, and some of them were, frankly, not very good kids, Uh, criminals, basically, that were put in there, and they were always sort of a disciplinary problem. Um, And I always remember this one episode back in those days. uh, I don't know how old you guys are. You're probably too young to remember this, but back in those days, uh, they used to have these uh, radios in the car and whatnot that had a a telephone kind of connected that had a telephone sort of handset that was all the rage if you had those in your CB radios. Well, those were also what we used in the the radios in the communications electronics uh, aspect of the Marine Corps for command and control of the troops and whatnot. So they were a hot item, and they were always being stolen from our comm shop, and we could never figure out who was doing it. So one day I pulled into the parking lot, and there was this uh, private there who... It had been busted many times, just a bad kid, standing there with his the trunk open in his car with his arms full of these handsets, uh, and he's about to put them in, in in the trunk. And I remember thinking, I got this guy dead to right. And so I pull up and said, uh, you know, Prime Windsor, what the hell are you doing? And without blinking, he looks at me, and goes, Lieutenant, I, he says, I know we've been having a lot of problems with people stealing these things, so I figured I'd come in here early this morning and put them in my trunk for safekeeping. <laughs> and I, I, I think that was my—I think that was my first experience uh, of having somebody just look me in the eyes and absolutely stone cold lie to me, uh, which is good training for when you become a lawyer because, unfortunately, that that happens a lot in our business. And uh, so I, I think it sort of helps you grow up. It, it takes you from sort of the naive college kid to a little bit more uh, experienced in the ways of the world. Uh, and also seeing the court-martial process and all the rest of that kind of stuff, I think really um, gave me some sense of what the the point of the legal process was. It was it was the greatest thing I ever did. With going to service,
4: I'm sure that guy was probably the uh, the greatest excuse or the greatest story that he had ever come up with up to that point. And he probably uh, walked away thinking he got one over on you, but. When you return to uh when you return to Pittsburgh after your time in the Marine Corps, um is Pittsburgh a place that you uh, you always grew up? Are you a uh a uh, a longtime uh member of the Steel City?
1: Uh it just by finishing up that last one. He didn't get over, he got court martialed <laughs> for oh. <that>. and, <laughs> uh but uh, no, actually I grew up in Johnstown. Um and then I came to pittsburgh after i got out of the service to go to law school here at uh, duquesne university here in pittsburgh and uh loved the city and i've just never left
3: now obviously being in mm-hmm. pittsburgh it's not very close to connecticut but it's not too far from connecticut so how did you end up in the crazy world
1: of wv and where did vince mcmahon meet you yeah. Um, my first time with WWE came in 1987. Uh, uh, back, back then, uh, uh, Jim the Anvil Neidhart and Bret Hart were the tag team champions, as I would learn, and uh, they were flying into Pittsburgh one night to perform up at the Civic Arena in January of 1987, and at the end of the flight... Uh, the FBI went on the plane and arrested Jim and charged him with a federal felony of interference with the flight crew, the allegation being that he had supposedly punched the flight attendant in a dispute over drinks. Uh, at that time, I had been working on a case out in Colorado with a fellow who was then representing Vince and Linda in the early days of the WWE by the name of Ted Dinsmore. And so when he, Jim got arrested, uh, Vince and Linda called Ted. Ted in turn called me and asked me if I would be willing to represent the guy. And I knew absolutely nothing really about uh, Jim Neidhart or really the WWE at the time. I guess I probably had heard of it, but I really wasn't a fan. I hadn't watched it, whatnot. And uh, so I said, no, tell him to come see me in the morning. Uh, <laughs> so again, keeping in mind, my law firm was sort of white-shoed, you know, dressed-down corporate people. Jim shows up the next day with these uh, wraparound shades, a ZZ Top beard. I, I'm sure you guys know who he is. Oh, no, we
4: uh,
1: <laughs> one was one of, the, one of the scariest looking people you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, but but turned out to be a hell of a nice guy. And uh, what, I, what I remember mostly about it was that the day he came in, he was in abject terror that he was going to have to call this guy named Vince. And I kept thinking to myself, Christ almighty, what's this Vince guy like? If This guy's scared of him, for Christ's sake. I mean, this guy looks like the scariest looking human being I've ever seen. I can't wait to meet who this Vince is, you know. Hmm. And uh, so he did. He had to call Vince and tell him about the trouble he was in and, and all the rest of that. And got his butt chewed out and all the rest of that. But in any event, uh, so I, I went on to represent Jim and uh he was acquitted of all those charges, and the next day I brought a malicious prosecution case against U.S. Air and the three flight attendants who had uh, caused him to be arrested for charges that turned out to be categorically false. He didn't do anything like what they said he did, and uh ended up getting him a couple hundred thousand dollars for his troubles over that. And I think that kind of got Vince's attention a little bit, because I don't think he had a great love affair for lawyers at that point. Still doesn't, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and that's sort of the beginning of the relationship that I I had. Uh, from from there, shortly after that, there was uh, in the Middle District of Pennsylvania uh, a federal grand jury uh, in the late 80s started looking into the affairs of the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission doctor, a fellow by the name of Dr. George Orin, Um Back in the late 80s, uh, and actually throughout the 80s, under federal law at the time, it was not a crime of any kind to possess or use anabolic steroids for any purpose, whether it was for bodybuilding or performance enhancement or anything like that. And in late 1989, they, They passed a law which went effective in 1990, the first time making it a federal crime to possess or use steroids for other than medicinal purposes. And so the government was using Dr. Zahorian, I think, to try to uh, get a high-profile trial uh, to advertise, if you will, this change in the law about anabolic steroids. And Dr. Zahorian, as, as matters turned out and was later learned, was essentially selling steroids to just about everybody, to, uh, people at Penn State, prison guards, prisoners, and also uh, a couple of WWE performers, including Hulk Hogan. Uh, and so I got involved in, in that grand jury when it was going on, sort of monitoring what they were doing to see who they were going to bring charges against. Uh, and at the end of that grand jury, they, uh, when they were nearing the point they were going to indict Dr. Zahorian, they announced that the last witness they were going to try to bring to the grand jury was going to be Hulk, which was obvious they were doing only for publicity purposes. So I I indicated to them at that point in time that I would represent Hulk in connection with uh, their attempts to drag him through what uh, Dr. Zahorian had done when Hulk and nobody else had done anything illegal. And I I represented uh, Hulk in that situation, uh, ended up uh, making an argument to the judge that it was illegal for them to to do that for various reasons, which he agreed with me on and quashed their attempts to drag Hulk through that trial as a witness and whatnot. Uh, And so Horian ended up getting convicted uh, of various different offenses uh, from that premise, which occurred in late 19. uh, 80, 1990, then there was a second investigation up in the Eastern District of New York in the early 90s that uh, then ended up, you know, was just an ordeal like a, none I've ever seen, where uh, this uh, ambitious prosecutor up there uh, just was basically legally stalking the company, looking for anything he could to try to. Wrecked the lives of the McMahons and put the WWE out of business. Uh, And I represented them throughout that, including the eventual trial uh, that uh, resulted in an acquittal of all charges. And that's sort of in in narrative form how my relationship with the WWE started and got underway. And then after, after, after the criminal trial, I mean, you you go through stuff like that you form kind of a lifelong bond with the people that uh, you go through that with. And uh, you know, we've just been very close ever since.
3: Absolutely. Because, you know, you, you definitely, you know, you save his butt a bit. Obviously, you know, you kind of save Hogan a bit. And, you know, the, the thing is people always say, you're kind of Vince's secret weapon. You know, you're always getting this guy out of trouble and that guy out of trouble. But how close was Vince to serving jail time? Because we had Jerry Jarrett on the show and he was talking about how Vince, at that point was bringing him in to possibly take over just in case things went south.
1: Well, to be honest with you, I don't think he was ever close because the charges were so ludicrous uh, that I was, I was pretty confident that I would be able to defeat them. But you never know for sure, because I mean, we had a lot of strange circumstances. We had a judge uh, who was 85 at the time of the trial and uh, had been a very a notable judge and had a wonderful career. And I, I certainly don't want to say anything that uh, demeans his memory, but the reality was that he would vacillate between lucidity and senility in the middle of the trial, uh, which is kind of a scary thing to, to see when your liberty is at issue. But the, the charges that they had brought uh, were so ludicrous that uh, I, I was confident that if even if... Um, they could get a conviction, which I didn't think they could, that I would win on appeal. Uh, The charges were these cockamamie charges because there had been nothing done illegal. Uh, As I said to you, the the fact that uh, wrestlers had used steroids in the 80s violated no federal law. So they concocted this charge that they called uh, basically a conspiracy to defraud the Food and Drug Administration. In its attempts to regulate the distribution uh, and manufacture of anabolic steroids, which was a farce. We never dealt with the FDA. You can't defraud a government agency that you never deal with. Uh, And it was just a trumped-up charge that, that frankly, gave me a chance to put the FDA on trial for, for what its attempts to regulate steroids really was. And I ended up in that trial, I, I basically, what I did for two years, I just learned everything you could ever learn about steroids from how they were made, to who manufactured them, to how the government approved them. Uh, I, I knew more about anabolic steroids by the time I went to that trial, probably than any doctor on the face of the planet Earth. Uh, and I used that knowledge to demonstrate the utter hypocrisy of the government charging anybody with defrauding the Food and Drug Administration because the Food and Drug Administration had been knowingly permitting uh, some of these manufacturers of anabolic steroids to sell them to the people after they had determined they were not safe and effective for human use. Um, and I showed that to the jury and it just appalled them. Uh, and, and so they, we didn't even call a witness. I just, all I did was cross-examine the people that the government brought in as their witnesses, and the jury didn't have any problem quitting of all charges.
3: And you mentioned a little bit before you said, you know, you and Vince had a great bond. Obviously, you know, you did your job very, very well, and obviously he was very happy with that. But what is that bond like? What's the relationship like with Vince? Like how, how would you describe Vince as a person? Because everyone always sees, you know, Vince TV, Vince, even Jim Neidhart, Vince the intimidating boss. How would you
1: describe Vince? I think he's a fascinating person. I mean, one of my uh, favorite stories about Vince is, you know, when you when you first uh, undertake to represent anybody as a lawyer, uh, you, you, you form judgments about the people you're representing and whether you want to get emotionally invested in them or whether you don't. Uh, what kind of person is this? You know, are they honest? Are they truthful? What not? Uh, But in the early days, when I was forming my relationship with him back in the early 90s, uh, during the time the government was doing all this, it was a horrible time because the tabloid wars were going on and there were all these horrible, sensational stories and uh, telling these lurid and false tales about people up there, just just miserable times dealing with the New York Post and whatnot. And uh, what I always remember is, you know, One day when, you know, the headlines were just terrible and just lurid and false and the kind of stuff that would make everybody angry, um, we were walking out of his office late at night one night and there was this fellow, I I don't even remember his name, I think it was Nick something. He was the janitor in the the building up at the WWE. And I learned later that he had uh, a need for a dialysis machine in the building uh, in order to keep his job, which they did, just to keep this janitor working there. And so anyway, I, you know, I, I came out of the office and we were walking out, and I saw him standing there sort of mopping the floor and whatnot. And uh, Vince came out of the office right after me. and was walking down the hall and this guy saw him, and he just said, Hey, Vince, and Vince turns around uh, and it was a hellish day and goes back and starts saying, Hey, how's your family? How are you doing? And took the time. To care about that little guy, the janitor in the damn building that, you know, most people probably wouldn't even know his name. But he did. He cared about him. And I thought, you know, that's kind of an interesting scene that I have never forgotten about Vince. Uh, and apart from that, that part of him, I mean, as a businessman, he's, he's fascinating to watch. It's, uh, I, I think he is the great marketer of our era, Uh, what he has done with this business is just mind-boggling when you watch WrestleMania and you see the production values and the people from all over the world to come to see it. It's, it's extraordinary what he has done. Uh, And then when you see the influence on television, it goes beyond wrestling to when you see how politicians now uh, use the sort of the ring entrance mode to to, to build drama for themselves uh, in various ways, and how the NFL has stolen, if you will, some of the, the the camera techniques that were used in the XFL and all those kind of stuff. His, his influence on television and marketing is extraordinary. He's, so he's been, oh, sorry. I, I mean, I, I think he's fascinating, and, and you know, I mean, I always the, the people who aren't. Really knowledgeable about how ingenious this company is. I always use the story about Stone Cold with that 316 business, uh, where uh, you know they go from a, a simple promo with Stone Cold and, and Jake. If you're familiar with the promo I'm talking about, oh yeah, very
3: uh, familiar. Oh yeah,
1: where where he he does nothing more than say, "Let me give you Austin 316. I'm going to kick your ass." And they take that 3-16 and they put that on T-shirts and they sell quadrillions of these things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they do it at a time, which is kind of interesting because it, it, at that time, uh, everything was politically correct and kids were getting tossed out of school. if They wore t shirt that didn't say the right thing and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And so everybody loved that because it was sort of a code word for something that most people in authority had no clue. What the heck does that mean? Uh, and so you couldn't go. You couldn't go to a WWE show for years without seeing the, the crowd was full. These three sixteen t-shirts, which, from a marketing standpoint, how ingenious is that? if you can take three cold sixteen and turn it into that.
3: He's definitely been a visionary. He's definitely been a, a marketing genius. But well, where do you think the the other side of Vince comes from? You know, the the fearful side, the, the everyone's intimidated of him side. Where do you see that? Have you ever seen that side of him kind of come out?
1: Not with me, I don't, no. I mean, I've had, uh, I've never had that issue with Vince. He's always been, we just have a different kind of relationship. I've, I've never seen. I think he has an obvious physical presence and uh, uh, an aura to him. Uh, you know, I always, I always tell people, you know, in your life, you maybe meet five people who are just different than everybody else. Uh, and it may be your father, it may be some master sergeant in the Marine Corps, or in my case. it may who knows who might be the Pope. But I think for anybody who meets Vince, he's one of those five. He's just different uh he, he's, he's a different breed of cat, he has a different presence to him. Uh, I think his accomplishments and what he has done probably um, intimidate people a little bit. But I think he's a very human person, and I think if you, if you just sit down and talk to him like a normal person, uh, that's what he enjoys, and that's what he is.
3: What do you think makes you two mesh so well together? What, you know, because you said the bond and stuff. What has
1: made you you guys been so close together? Um Probably because we're both, you know, A-type personalities. And I, and I think Vince is kind of like, uh, I, I have this view, if you haven't done anything wrong, um, then face up and defend yourself rather than uh, you know, a lot of these people nowadays, if, you, if you're sued and somebody accuses you of something, then the natural tendency is to deny it hunker down and, or pay somebody to go away. But you know, we just don't do that. We've never done that. And, uh, you know, if something has been done wrong, it's going to be done wrong in error, not by intent usually. And if something has done wrong, then you try to fix it. But if you haven't done anything wrong, then you defend yourself. And, um, and on a jocular note, I, when I kid, Vince, uh, I don't know if you ever remember um, seeing or if you ever saw that movie, The Hustler, the story about Larry Flint. Have you guys ever seen that? Oh yes, yep. And there's that there's that scene if you remember where uh, uh, he's he's basically been ordered not to leave town and he's in trouble for doing something with the judge and he's going to leave town anyway. And he's being dragged up the the airplane steps in his wheelchair and his lawyer standing now at the bottom of the steps and he's he's sort of yelling at him saying, you know why are you doing this? You you know it's going to happen. He said you know that. Judge is going to be angry. Why, why are you doing all this? And he's yelling at Larry Flint? And uh, Woody Harrelson, plays Larry Flint. looks at him and goes, why are you yelling at me? I'm the perfect client. I'm rich and I'm always in trouble.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I always kid, sort of kidding me. I said, you remind me a little bit of that scene. You know? and, uh, but he's not always in trouble. And the funny thing is, I mean, he doesn't want to be in trouble. Wants his business to be run uh, without legal complications, and mostly, most of the time, it is. I mean, it's been a pretty smooth road uh, most of the time, with some some bumps we had to get over with Ted uh, Turner and you know, his attempts to try to put the company out of business, and uh, the Parents Television Council, and some of those kind of things. But in, in the main, uh, you know, it's a very professionally run organization, uh, and with some great executives and great talent that uh, support the organization. Do you think when things like
3: that happen with the PTC and Ted Turner, do you think that Vince takes that very personally? And, you know, he kind of takes the personal vendetta that, you know, that, that he's not going to take that, that he's
1: not going to lose? Well, I, I wouldn't say it was a vendetta. I mean, I think he's a very principled guy. I mean, uh, when Turner was doing what he was doing, there was no question that, uh, Turner was you know, targeting the company and, and trying to put them under uh, and was taking the uh, intellectual property of the uh, WWE, which was their stock and trade. Uh, and when you get to the PTC, there really wasn't much question of what they were doing it was incredibly unfair and defamatory. as was eventually shown by what we proved in that case and their ended up paying us millions of dollars for what they had done and issuing a very public retraction for the kind of things they had been been saying uh so i think what makes him different in those situations is not uh that he reacted i mean i, I think that's 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 vince i mean most people in those kind of situations might just say hey, heck with it you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bother but he didn't he wanted to uh, to make it right and you know, when we got into WCW, we found out all kinds of things about what they were doing and, and, and created some uh, interesting law that uh, basically holds that the characters that, that WWE created and, and depicts in these copyrighted works that it owns and possesses uh, is really no different than Batman and Superman and the other characters that you see. and They're entitled to intellectual property protection such that you know, you can't just take, for example, the Razor Ramon character or the Diesel character or those things that uh, the company had created and just steal them. Uh, it would be like stealing the Batman or Superman. We've got legal precedents that, that protect the company from, from that kind of action.
4: In that instance where that was a, a very uh, public um, revelation that uh, WCW at that time was trying to portray, you know, the Razor Ramon and the Diesel characters, do you put any onus on the performer themselves for not, uh, you know, having the sense to, uh, maybe, uh, shed the character, or is that something that WCW as an organization would have been fully responsible for?
1: Uh, I think it was WCW. I mean, look, Scott and, and uh, Kevin, are, you know, back in the fold of the WWE, you know, it's been a long history. They were very talented performers, uh, you know, and, uh, it's hard to blame them uh, if you have somebody like a Turner coming and throwing the, the money at them that he was thrown at them uh, to not take it, uh, not go along with it. Uh, that they would really have to be reliant upon the organization to tell them what whether what they were doing was legal or not legal. Uh, so no, we don't. I don't blame them. It was all we think it was all orchestrated at the highest levels of. Of Turner, And the fascinating thing about it all was that at the end of the day, you know, if you don't, if you don't do the right thing, it ends up hurting you. And at the end of the day, after all said and done, they ended up paying us an awful lot of money uh, to settle that lawsuit. And then that money in turn was used a couple of years later to buy the assets of WCW. So it didn't help them much in the long run. And uh, in, in the end, uh WWE ended up owning the film library uh, among other film libraries that they now have to show on the network.
4: Yeah, which is absolutely mind-boggling for two fans like John and I, you know, looking back and seeing WCW and at the time of the WWF being two different entities and now it all being under the same umbrella. Is, uh, it's very cool to see and, and quite the uh, it's quite the, the look at the landscape of how Sports entertainment has progressed, but it also was kind of funny, too, in mentioning uh, the Razor Ramon and the Diesel characters. It shows that, you know, Vince is really the modern day P.T. Barnum, that he could take two characters that were established and essentially then he repackaged them and put the gimmick or the character onto two other performers, which led to one of the longest tenured WWE performers in Glenn Jacobs. But in that same time period, there was a segment on WWF TV where mm-hmm. Vince shed the announcer character and came out as Vince McMahon, the the head of the WWF and addressed uh, legal proceedings and the, the New York post incident that you referenced earlier. Um, Does he come to you with something like that at at that point, since he had never shed, you know, just the announcer character before. And this was the first time we actually got to see the businessman Vince McMahon on television. You know,
1: I'm I'm not sure uh, Chad, what, episode you're referring to. I don't recall that, to be honest with you. Um,
4: it's, uh, this just, is kind of showing my, uh, you know, my, my fandom, my, uh, my wrestling, uh, uh, I guess my wrestling prowess here, but it was in 1995. Uh, it was an episode of WWF superstars where it was a, a taped uh, pre-recorded um, kind of just a quick, maybe about two and a half minute segment that Vince just came out and addressed a couple of the things that were going on at the time um, in terms of the, uh, the New York Post and the articles that they were printing and kind of the vendetta that they had towards some of the attorneys uh, representing the WWF at the time. But would Vince at that point come to you since he had never shed the character before? I,
1: you know, honestly, Chad, I don't remember it. We, it. Whatever it was, we probably did talk about it, but I, I just am drawing a blank on what it was that he did or what it was that provoked him in 95 to, to do that. I just don't recall
4: Yeah, again, it's just showing my uh, kind of maybe my wrestling uh, nerddom here that I can uh, dial it back because it's something that really stood out because, you know, as a fan, when you're trying to, you know, learn what you can about the business and, you know, you kind of, you know, it's a hat tip, you know, you know that Vince was in control. Uh, It was just, it was definitely uh, an interesting light to see him under, um, coming out and talking about, you know, the WWF business, but... Also, referencing the WWF, obviously, it's no longer the WWF, it's the WWE. Is that something that took a little bit of time to get used to?
1: Um, Actually, it was kind of interesting the way that transition took place pretty quickly. You know, it was uh, uh, another one of Vince's clever and genius ideas to just switch one letter. The, um, uh, The whole ordeal with the World Wildlife Fund was kind of crazy. Um, never did understand why they cared because nobody ever confused us with them. Uh, and watching the, the whole English court proceedings and seeing how different, uh, that was than American court proceedings. It was kind of frustrating from my standpoint, cause it was the, the one big case that I couldn't handle. They, English courts will not allow American lawyers to try cases in their courtrooms. And so I, I could only go there and watch, and it was <laughs> infuriating to sit there and watch that and not be able to do anything. Uh, but whenever they issued their orders, that you know, we, you know, we couldn't be WWF in the way we wanted to be anymore. Uh, it was just too burdensome to try to comply with, with the, the requirements for what we had to do if we were going to be WWF. And so Vince just came up with the idea we'll change the WWE and and uh that you know, I don't know if you remember the the slogan get the F out. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of clever, you know, and uh and and now, you know, it it actually captures what they do maybe better than the word federation anyway, because they are an entertainment company and that's exactly what the, the business is. So it was a very successful rebrand I thought.
3: Definitely, he definitely spun it in in a positive direction. But you know, there was another case before that with the USA Network. I believe it was before that. What was the deal? It was something with the rights to the show? Was that the deal with the USA Network, lawsuit?
1: Yeah. Well, what was going on at, at that time? Was that Chad that asked that?
3: No, it was, it was, John. It was me, John. Okay. John,
1: what was what was going on at that time uh, was. Uh, the RAW program was on the USA Network. Uh, At the time, the RAW was and still is usually the number one rated uh, program on that uh, network. And the company was also at that time starting the XFL. Um, So, TBS wanted to get uh, rights in the NFL or in the XFL and the, the RAW program and whatnot. And so they started recruiting us to switch the programming from the USA Network to TBS uh, and made a very lucrative offer for us to do that. Uh, USA Network uh, had a contract with the WWE that gave them what's called a matching rate. In other words, if somebody else came along and made an offer for the raw program, uh, and I'm just throwing out a number, it's not the real number, but if they said somebody else came on and said, we'll give you $250 million a year for for the raw program, they had the right to match that. And if they did, then they could keep the company from moving its programming where it wanted to, to move it to. So what happened is, and, and the way that contract was set up, once you got an offer from another entity, you had a tender at to USA Network to see if they would exercise the matching rank, which we did. And 10 days afterwards, they had to tell us whether they matched or not. Well, instead, they turned around and they sued us in the Delaware Chancery Court and claimed that they did not have to match uh, the stuff that had nothing to do with the raw programming, such as the XFL rights and other things that TBS was throwing in as sweeteners to get us to move the property and asked the Delaware Chancery Court, which is a fabled court in America, probably the best court system in America to enjoin the WWE from moving raw from the USA network over to Turner's networks. And so we had to go up to Delaware, up to the Delaware Chancery Court and fight that fight out. Uh, And we won that, that one. uh, And, and got the right to, to leave the USA network and, Went on to Turner for I think I think it was three years or something like that. And the XFL, you know, the story was with the XFL and how that all ended up. But that's what that case was about.
3: And you've been involved in so many cases. I mean, we could go on forever with all the cases. But there's a couple ones that I, I really just kind of wanted to get to the heart of and get your opinion on it. And one of them in particular, you know, before we were talking about the WB network royalties and that whole thing. And we were kind of in the middle of it. We had a bunch of guys on our show. We were talking about it. Obviously, um, we've had Rene Dupree on a couple times. But what was the whole network royalty case, and how come it ultimately, you know, came to court and got dismissed?
1: Um, well, I think Dupre, uh was being manipulated uh, by the same lawyer that's been running around bringing these CTE cases against the company, Uh in fact, we know he is. Um, and that, that whole business started with this guy advertising on the Internet, looking for people to to sue the WWE. And then he's made you know, various promises and representations to these people about what he thinks he's going to get for them and all the rest of that. Uh, after the the judge in the CTE cases issued her substantive rulings throwing out entirely, two of the cases and five-sixths of the other one while expressing skepticism about whether that claimed to survive. Shortly after that, uh, we believe he uh, got Dupre to, to bring this royalties case as kind of a way to deflect attention from what was happening uh, in the other cases, uh, knowing full well, uh, frankly, that Dupre's case couldn't go anywhere, and as matters turned out, uh, evidently didn't even tell uh, the, the lawyers that he recruited to bring the case and hide his own involvement uh, that Dupre had signed not one, but two contracts that prohibited him from bringing such claims. Um, and as soon as the, the lawsuit was, was brought to my attention, uh, I uh, sent an email and I think the night they filed it to the lawyer in Chicago uh, that, you know, Dupre would not have any lawyers in Chicago. He's from Canada. Uh, and he was steered there. So I, I brought this to the attention of the Chicago lawyer and said, look, I, you know, I assume you uh, don't know this uh, because any lawyer who saw these documents wouldn't bring this lawsuit. But here's, uh, here's what your client signed. And as you can see, uh, it absolutely prohibits this lawsuit that you brought. And I would demand that you withdraw it immediately. Uh, And he wrote back saying, you know, very professionally, thank you, Uh, I was not aware of this, we'll look into it. And I'm sure he did, and and as uh, as the evidence shows, he then withdrew the lawsuit, which was the only proper thing he could have done, frankly. could not have continued the lawsuit uh, at all uh, once I brought that to his attention. And Dupre would have known it, too. I mean, it was all designed, I think, to create some negative publicity for the company and see if they could uh, maybe get uh, somebody better than Dupre to bring such a lawsuit. It's kind of trolling, if you will, for plaintiffs.
3: Now, with this whole thing, how does that differ from the the Doug Summers
1: case and the Gilbert family case? Well, I don't think it does. Uh, They were trying to make it different. Uh, by making contractual claims, but uh, these claims have never succeeded yet and they never will. Um, uh, Gilbert Summers, there's a bunch of cases. There's uh, um, Freddie Dreyer and a bunch of guys that opted out of the NFL. If you remember, the NFL had similar cases um, and they, they had a uh, class action case brought against them for people uh, from former NFL players uh, on the NFL network, which the NFL, as they seem to do, they have a lot of money to throw around. So they chose to settle with that class and pay them some money. Uh, But uh, a couple guys, including Freddie Dwyer and the rest, uh, I think about 12 other guys opted out of that class and brought their own lawsuits alleging that, the NFL owed more money, I gathered than what they would have gotten through the last action settlement. And it was kind of a dumb move because now you have, to, you have to survive motions to dismiss that can be filed against such claims. And the NFL did. And they lost. And the court threw their claims out. Um, um, basically, the way the law works on this stuff is pretty simple. I mean, we're the owner of the copyrights of all of these things. WWE is the sole and exclusive owner of the copyrights. Federal copyright law uh, rewards, if you will, uh, the people who make the investments in creating these copyrighted works who go out and hire the talent and the audience or the stadiums and the cameras and, you know, all the expense of creating these films with exclusive rights uh, of display, reproduction, and sale. And so, Uh, When these people come in and say, well, you know, um, you're being unjustly enriched uh, and I'm not getting any of this money, the the defense is always federal copyright law gives us the exclusive right to do it and preempts any of these state law claims that you're trying to assert that would burden our rights of ownership. And they get thrown out every time. Uh, I'm not aware of any that have ever succeeded. Uh, and gotten past uh, the preemption argument when they tried these state law claims. Uh, what they were trying to do here a little bit was a little bit uh, twist on that. They had those state law claims that would have gotten tossed out if they had not signed the, the, this contract, but they were trying to bend the contract language into somewhat of a contract claim to try to claim that they were entitled to these monies under the uh, terms of the price contract which wasn't correct either, but we never had to get into that because of uh, what I told you previously. He had signed, the prohibited from even asserting that claim. Right. So, and we uh, can- I hope that answers your question for you.
3: Yeah. And what's interesting is because we were talking about the network and we're talking about how WCW is on there, and obviously it's great you get all this footage, you get all those stuff, and then there's ECW on there as well, and there's many other leagues. But what is the reason why a guy from ECW or a guy from WCW doesn't have, you know, the right to get any sort of royalties from the WWE network?
1: Was that in their contract previously, or, you know, what's the whole the deal with that? Well, let me just give you an example, and I'll use an ECW as an example. Uh-huh. ECW, uh, if you recall your, your history, went into Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. in, in New York. I forget the exact year, but uh, whenever you go into a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, uh, what happens is your assets and your liabilities are marshaled. Uh, the bankruptcy trustee tries to sell the assets of the bankrupt estate in order to generate some cash to pay off creditors uh, who would be, for example, uh, any ECW talent that were owed money from ECW which would share whatever money is available which usually isn't very much when you're bankrupt you don't get very much. And when somebody goes bankrupt like, the EC, like ECW does, it essentially wipes out all the claims of anybody that, 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 that they would have against ECW for non-payment of contract royalties or whatever else talent might have claimed against uh, uh, ECW. The assets of the company uh, are put up for sale, free and clear, of all lien, uh, and uh, that's part of the whole bankruptcy sale. When you think about it, nobody's going to buy assets that carry with it liabilities. That's <laughs> not going to do that. Uh, and so, uh, what you had there was you had this entire film library of uh, ECW uh, that would have been sitting somewhere in a cardboard box right now, uh, not being displayed anywhere. Uh, and the WWE decided that it would buy and pay money to buy those films and the copyrights to go with those films and with those copyrights, the rights that I've just described to you, and obtain from the bankruptcy court, uh, which is a normal transaction, a bill of sale giving the WWE in exchange for the money it paid for those, the sole right, title, and interest and in the copyrights to those works. Uh, so that's why the WWE has the legal right to display them on, on the uh, network free and clear of any claims, plain and simple. Um, and the bankruptcy court actually retains jurisdiction uh, to hold anybody in contempt who tries to assert otherwise. Um, I also, by the way, advised uh the praise lawyer of that fact, uh, which I don't think he knew either. Huh. So you know, and, and you know when you think about what, what's what the WWE's done by by making the investment in these films and whatnot, it uh it allows them uh, most, of, most performers, or at least a lot of performers, uh, go through sort of a, a, a storied history where they go from one promotion to another to WWE. And if you didn't own all these uh, copyrighted works, it would be not as possible to tell such a, a good story. For example, if you wanted to tell the life story of Ric Flair, you, you can now do that because you have all the, the films of promotions that he performed in. So you can tell his biography, his life story, and, and you can do that for anybody else who performed for ECW, WCW, and WWE. He could do it in a seamless fashion, which you couldn't do if you didn't own the copyrights in those, those works, which we do. And that's the ingenious level by what, what Vince has done. He's, uh, he, he's acted to keep much of wrestling history and the history of people alive that would not be alive but for his investment in this stuff
3: definitely if you think about it because the network is, is keeping a, a lot of the, the names out there in alive do you think that vince really does love preserving history and he's the guy that's actually going to be the one preserving the history of professional wrestling
1: yes and i think that speaks for you can see it i mean by his actions he is uh, the custodian of, of the wrestling history right now, and it's been his whole life it's been the life of his family it's generational uh, so yeah I think he uh, he cares greatly about the history of this business and uh, has great respect for the people who uh, who have been part of it and who helped him build it does he
3: ever come to you and say you know he he's shocked that that somebody's suing him or not that he's mad, but that he's you know a little perturbed that this person would come back and try to sue him. has any of those conversations ever happened between you two?
1: Well, I can't John Chad. I hope you understand i I really can't ethically uh, disclose specific right. conversations that I have right as a privilege I, I, so I have to respectfully <laughs> decline to answer that okay. question because i <laughs> I guess I was
3: just thinking about the, the Billy Jack Haynes case and, and all the stuff that he said, and the, you know all the crazy things that that he did, whether through his Facebook page or whether through video. What was your whole thought process on Billy Jack Haynes being the the basically lead guy to sue for the concussion?
1: Well, Billy Jack Haynes, I mean, he he, he goes all the way back. Uh, to the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, he was doing the same stuff then. Uh, everybody in the business knows uh, what he is. Uh, the idea that, uh, that this trolling campaign where you were sort of, where this Cairo skull was out there looking for people to sue, uh, the best you can come up with is a Billy Jack Haynes Uh, to supposedly put forward as uh, he's going to be a representative of a class representing all people who ever performed for the WWE. Do you really think for a minute that people like Rock and Stone Cold or (laughs) uh, think that that Billy Jack Haynes is somebody they want representing their interests? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous uh, uh and, and and that's that's basically what he would be doing in that situation and uh it, it was just, it was he was really doing the same thing with him as he just tried to do with the prey, and that it was make some very sensational charges uh that uh will fall from from the minute they were made uh when they were made we We got on the phone with him and said uh, you know, these charges that you have made are false. You know they're false. If they're not withdrawn, we're going to seek sanctions against you. Uh, they quickly withdrew much of what they said there that was absolutely false. They have continued to do the same thing, however. In fact, in the uh, recent opinion that the judge issued, uh, dismissing Haynes's claim uh, and dismissing uh, the, the claims of McCullough, Sodoka. Uh, and, and Matt wife as uh, she actually made findings that they have made false allegations in the lawsuit and noted that there are sanctions motions pending against them and went on to describe all uh, they have made these these just totally inconsistent and sometimes incomprehensible allegations throughout this litigation that they have brought so uh, you know it, it, Billy Jack Haynes, is just being used. He'll never see one penny for anything. Uh, and it's sad, frankly, to see people that uh, maybe are down and out and don't have much money fall for this line that, that well, there's, there's going to be some pot of gold for you at the end of this rainbow when there's not going to be.
3: And also there was the LaGrasso, the Singleton-LaGrasso case, which I believe was
1: several Cases
3: brought up by them correct
1: um, that was the second case they brought after after they brought the one out in uh, uh, Oregon um, and brought to their attention that Oregon has a lot of uh, laws against what they were doing they, they went searching for another set of plaintiffs and so they found a and a Singleton kid and then uh, they brought that one in Pennsylvania, which was the wrong place, so again, I had to point out to them that these guys had all signed contracts whereby they agreed to litigate any claims in Connecticut, uh, so those claims were transferred to Connecticut. Uh, then once they got in Connecticut, uh, they realized, began to realize the Connecticut law weren't too much for their liking, so they brought a third action out in California where they tried to hide... Uh, who was involved in that, and from a lawyer standpoint, uh, for, on behalf of McCullough and Sudoka and Wise, again, in violation of forum selection clauses that required the case to be brought in uh, Connecticut? Uh, that federal judge, as, as did the federal judge in Oregon, as did the federal judge in Pennsylvania, as did every federal judge so far, ordered against them and ruled that these cases had to go forward in Connecticut. And so that's how they all got to Connecticut. Uh, They also brought one down in Tennessee on behalf of uh, uh, Mabel's with, uh, and another one down in Texas on behalf of the former girlfriend, of Matt Osborne, Uh, again, in violation of uh, contracts that said those would be in Connecticut. Those federal judges also transferred those cases to Connecticut. So they've lost every motion so far, frankly. Hmm.
3: And the Nelson Fraser case with his, um, you know, his with his wife. That was a part of the same. The same people were involved in that case as well.
1: Yes. Same lawyer. Hmm.
3: Now, as I start to wind it down here, I, I was very curious about the the Benoit thing with Stephanie McMahon. What was the outcome of that? And what was that lawsuit about?
4: I'm I'm
1: not sure what you're referring to with Benoit and Stephanie. I guess
3: she had made comments or they said she had made comments about concussions and it, they somehow linked it to the to Benoit the I guess around the Benoit case time.
1: Oh no, you mean in the in the CTE cases? Yeah. No, what yeah, the, okay. yeah what, no, what they uh what they, they did and the judge actually this is another point the judge found is that they have repeatedly mischaracterized Stephanie's role uh, and 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 noted after saying so that there were sanctions motions pending about this Uh, what they tried to do is they they were trying to come up with uh, a storyline if you will that mirrored the NFL Uh, and and what what got the NFL in in, uh, trouble in its cases is a much different situation than exists anywhere else. The NFL, the allegation against the NFL was that it had had for years uh, this committee, uh, the Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, headed by a rheumatologist, not even a neurologist, who uh, had actually published in medical journals and whatnot um, a bunch of so-called junk science, whereby uh, they were postulating that there was no harm in going back into an NFL game uh, on the same day you got a concussion, for example, and that uh, uh, there was no indication that repetitive head trauma would cause you any kind of long-term problems and things that arguably uh, misled all the players as to the safety of continuing to perform after they had gotten a concussion, affirmative acts and stuff like that. Well, we never did anything like that. We never had any publications that anybody put out or anything like that. So they were trying to concoct, if you will, uh, out of whole cloth, some nonsensical allegations uh, designed to show that the WWE did something that misled these people. Uh, And they don't have anything that they can point to that was ever said or done to any of them that misled them. So one of the things they came up with was this cockamamie allegation that uh, when Stephanie uh, testified before uh, a congressional committee that was sort of uh, uh, asking some questions after the Benoit death, that she had supposedly testified that there were no concussions in WWE's history, which was categorically false. She never said that. Uh, and they were asked that and they knew it, it it's all in transcript form and, and they they knew that wasn't what she said it's in writing what she said uh and then subsequently that was put before the judge of what she said and as i said the, the judge came out with her opinion saying that they had repeatedly mischaracterized what stephanie did and this is part of what our problem is with these people they just they just make these wild allegations that have no basis in fact uh and it's fiction writing it's not factual in nature at all
3: now speaking of stephanie obviously I mean, you've been in the WWE for or you know working alongside them for nearly 30 years now and obviously you've seen stephanie grow up and obviously you've seen shane grow up can you just believe how mm-hmm. successful that those two have become in the business world and then even shane main eventing wrestlemania this year against the undertaker
1: yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched them grow up from teenagers. They were uh, pretty much teenagers. Well, Stephanie was a teenager when I first started with them. Um, I think she's tremendously talented. Uh, she, she plays her role as well as you can. And in real life, she's just a sweetheart. She's one of the sweetest, nicest people that you'll, you'll ever meet. Uh, such a good ambassador for the WWE. I, I had a chance to watch her in town here a couple of weeks ago and they did raw and she was over at the the children's hospital with Paul triple H uh, with all these kids uh, that are just sick and and very uh, problematical. and, And what she's done is Connor's cure thing. It's just, it's magic to watch the effect that they have on children. And they really enjoy the hell out of doing that. I think they like doing that almost better than they like doing anything else. And, uh, you know, Shano, to to see him come out at WrestleMania with his three sons, and uh, <laughs> I was kind of laughing when I saw that because I have a, a grandson that's about 10, and I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, I wonder if my grandson was told to come run down that ramp before 100,000 people how he would act? <laughs> would, would would he be like Shane O's kids? And, and I don't think so. And you watch those kids just coming down there, and there really is in the genes. I mean, that's all you can say is those kids came running down there and they were not at least bit daunted by the moment. They were getting into it. And I thought, you know, it's the fifth generation. There really is something to that. <laughs> it's, it's in the blood because they, they're naturals at it. So it was fascinating to see, to be honest with you
3: pretty crazy if you look at the lineage of the McMahon family, you know, going from all the way back when to now and thinking of all the different generations of McMahon's that have, have come through. But, you know, you said you weren't really a fan and obviously, you know, you became somewhat of a fan
1: as you started working with WWE over the last 30 years, mm-hmm. but
3: did, have you had a favorite wrestler at all, you know, going through all that time?
1: Uh, there's so many, I mean, that are, are good. I mean, I I would be slating somebody if I said otherwise. I've gotten to know so many of them, and they're all so talented in their their own way. I mean, I, I think we all kind of enjoy I, – I, I think everybody enjoys watching Rock just because he's he's such a natural. The whole shtick that he does is he's just hilarious to watch and so mentally talented. But, you know, having said that, you know, so so was – Stone Cold, so is Triple H, so is Hulk Hogan, so is Bruno San Martino. I mean, in their own right, they were all legends in the business, and I have great respect for all of the guys that do what they do. It, uh, they're hardworking people, and uh, they're some of the toughest people on earth.
3: Do you have any favorite matches looking back, like any that stick out, maybe a couple of them that, that you you know really remember fondly and consider them
1: favorites? The one I always remember is that ladder match with Razor Ramon. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why, but that was just the first time I think I ever saw a ladder match. Uh, I think it was with Shawn Michaels, wasn't it? That one he did at WrestleMania.
3: WrestleMania 10 at MSG. I was there 18 rows back. It was a hell of a night for me. Hell of a day for me.
1: Yeah, I just thought... I don't know why that one always kind of sticks in your mind. And of course, you know, the Andre... Hulk thing was sort of a legendary thing I especially because that was right after uh, I represented Neidhart and I remember him when I was starting to learn what he did that he was all worried because he had gotten arrested in January and he was worried about whether he was going to make this event called Wrestlemania and I said what the hell is Wrestlemania he says oh Christ you never heard about it he says it's in a Pontiac, we're, done. we're going to have 92,000 people. I said, what? 92,000 people for a wrestling match? Are you serious? And he said, yes. So I, so I turned it in and watched it. Oh, my God, this is pretty incredible. And then uh, the Hulk and uh, the Andre thing, uh, it was pretty remarkable to see that thing. And now, knowing all the history of that uh, in the years since, I come to appreciate it even more. But it's tough to pick a favorite match because uh, you see some of these guys that Every time you watch it, you see somebody doing something new and creating some move that you've never seen before, and it's just—it's incredible to see how these young people are coming up now. Some of the moves they make—that Neville kids, Christ Almighty—the stuff he does is amazing.
3: Do you have a favorite wrestler now? Like you know, I know you mentioned Neville, but is there anybody now that kind of sticks out? Part of the newer breed, a new crop of talent? No, I,
1: I'm actually enjoying watching a new breed of talent. I think they're all incredibly talented, and it's uh, always interesting to watch the future. Uh, I think what uh, has been done with NXT uh, is sort of part of the whole uh, enhancement of the product to see how they now develop talent down here at NXT and the, the training that they go through and the uh, education that they get uh, on everything. Um, it ensures, I think, the viability of the business for a long time into the future with that kind of talent coming in.
4: Oh, it's absolutely unbelievable what the Performance Center does, and NXT as a, a brand and an entity is absolutely mind-boggling. How successful it's becoming! But before we wrap up here, I just would love to get your uh, get your take on this. You were referenced last year on Monday Night Raw as part of a backstage segment, but I think the question that we would love to hear. Your answer is: Have they ever asked you to actually appear on camera and a part of a storyline?
1: Uh, no, and I wouldn't. Uh, they did ask, though. It's sort of funny. They did ask. Uh, I wouldn't do it only because I wouldn't want to do anything that would demean the role I have as the lawyer for the company. Uh, you know, just, I wouldn't want to do that. And uh, but one time they were, it <laughs> uh, kind of a funny story. They were coming to town, and it was. In Pittsburgh, and it was in the context of that storyline, uh, where uh, Rock or had somehow somebody had run over Stone Cold in a car or something like that, if I remember the storyline correct. And so the, Stephanie calls me in my office one day when they come to town. the says, "Jerry, you know, we we need a detective. We need somebody to play a detective to sort of a bit role. Do you have anybody over there that can do that?" And at that moment, one of my partners, a friend of mine by the name of Mark Rush. Whose father and brother were both detectives walks in my office and I said, I think I got the guy for you. So he goes over and he plays his bit part where, uh, Rock's sort of question him. And Mark Stan was a little notepad, like he's a detective, asking him questions about, you know, have you, do you know who ran over stone cold in the car and whatnot? <laughs> and then Rock's doing his thing and he, he finally goes to him, Do you like donuts? And, <laughs> Mark and and, and Mark goes, you know, playing role, Yeah, I like donuts. He goes, Well, let me tell you what you can do with those donuts. Then he goes, you can stick them straight up your candy ass, you know, that whole thing. Well <laughs> so so the next the next morning when Mark came to work, uh there were donuts all over his desk <laughs> at work. And and he he and he literally he could not walk down the street of Pittsburgh for a couple weeks thereafter where people weren't pointing him out saying, hey, there's a detective, you know. And it was amazing the number of people who, who recognized him just from that little bit part he did on the show. So I've had partners did it, but I haven't done it myself.
4: That's fantastic. What a great story to end on. And before we let you go, what we love to say is we either ask, you know, where do you see yourself in five years or what's your legacy that's left on the business? But Mr. McDivitt, what would you say your legacy is in terms of the pantheon of WWE history?
1: I, you know, I would say it's just been a great honor to represent them. I, I love the company. I love what they do, and I love its people. Uh, it has been a professional dream and challenge to represent them because you have to uh, know a lot of different law, uh, be able to try a lot of different cases, and it has been uh, a labor of love. I genuinely... I've enjoyed every minute of it.
4: Exactly, and we enjoyed this. And actually, you know, I, I actually wanted to mention too, uh, with that legacy uh, and the fact that you mentioned the Pontiac Silverdome and WrestleMania three, that this past year at WrestleMania, to go over a hundred thousand fans was something that I think that every fan could kind of smile at. And obviously, you saw it evolve from WrestleMania three through some crazy times and all the way to this year at WrestleMania. And it was our pleasure to speak with you this evening, and we really sincerely appreciate your time.
1: Anytime, I enjoyed it, guys, and good luck with your podcast. You're doing great work.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the two man power trip of wrestling what the world is downloading.